Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to this latest instalment of Inside Story, a podcast series from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Each week we talk with Irish Times journalists about the background to the stories they're working on for the print edition or on irishtimes.com. And we're trying really to offer a bit more insight into the stories themselves and what the process of telling them has involved. As well as this being the season of good cheer, this can also be a time of some anxiety for news desks and commissioning editors and newspapers whose fear is that there just won't be enough news to fill their pages. That's one of the reasons, perhaps, why the release of state papers under the 30-year rule is such a boon for us in here, because there are always intriguing nuggets to be mined. I am joined today by two journalists who are working right now on those papers. Stephen Collins has just stepped down after more than a decade as our political editor, but he's also been delving into state papers, I think it's fair to say, Stephen, for many years. And Elaine Edwards is reporting on the papers for the first time this year. You're both very welcome. Stephen, perhaps you could explain to me, first of all, what is the 30-year rule and and why why does it exist? Well, the 30-year rule was brought in actually in uh, a bill 30 years ago by Gareth Fitzgerald, the National Archives Act 1986, which put on a formal footing access to the archives uh, for the general public and for academics. Now, before that, people could get privileged access. Uh, certain academics were able to get access to state papers, uh, and they used to release papers up to 50 years old, uh, 50 years and older, uh, among the early years of the state. But the 1986 Act put it on a firm footing, uh, and every year uh, the papers from all government departments are supposed to become available to the public and to researchers in the National Archives. Now, as it happens, uh, papers from many departments are not available for a variety of reasons, but the papers from the Taoiseach's department Department, Foreign Affairs, Justice, the Attorney General's Office, the President's Office, they are made available uh, every year and normally the press, we get a preview in December so we can have uh, a look through, we get three days to grab, it's like, it's like an needle in a haystack but to go in and have a look at what we can get uh, access to uh, and write it up. But the papers are then available for everybody for uh, from the early January. So Elaine, maybe you could tell me how doing this for the first time. What's the experience? You go up to the National Archives, um, you sit down, do you get a list or do you present it with boxes or are there big files or how does it work? Okay, well, uh, for the first time, if you go to the National Archives, you have to get a reader's card to start with. So you bring photo ID and a piece of paper with your address um, and the staff will show you to the reading room. Um, they produce files, uh, folders with uh, all the files available that have just been released to the, ar- the archives by the various departments. And you can go through those lists of files. And, and those are file names. And those, file do names, those file names give any indication of what's, what actually might be in them? They can do. But as Stephen said, it is a bit of a needle in a haystack process because um, a file might suggest the name of a file might suggest that there's something very politically interesting or uh, perhaps incendiary, although I don't think there was anything incendiary in the files this year. Um, but when you actually order the file from the staff, they will bring it back to you and you can go through the, the old files and folders. Um, many of them are at this stage obviously starting to deteriorate. You've got yellowing fax paper and telex paper and so on. Um, you'll often find there isn't anything of huge interest or that you just get back a, a, a file with newspaper cuttings, for example. Um, but it's the files sometimes that don't have a very interesting name that you'll sometimes find uh, little nuggets uh, interesting bits and pieces in such as um, 
exchanges between the various embassies and the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin, for example, ahead of state visits, or just just little diplomatic exchanges that you know I, people I, wouldn't. Say, I, know, I know. I myself, I'd be fascinated just to wander mm. around them for a while. And I know even with things like like newspaper archives, Stephen, that very often, as Elaine says, it's the kind of it's the it's the funny little nuggets at the bottom of page seven that are kind of entertaining and interesting and pique your curiosity. Yeah. But I suppose realistically, one has to start here with what would have been the big news stories and the big political stories of of nineteen eighty six, and to try and. See see if one can shed new light on what was what was happening. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the ones we were, I was looking out for, I was a reporter in 1986, so I do remember some of the stories, um, even saw my own name on some of the newspaper uh, clippings. But uh, the big issue in 1986 in terms of the national politics w- was Northern Ireland. Uh, the Anglo-Irish Agreement had been signed in 1985, uh, so it was how was that agreement working? Uh, so uh, I, I was fascinated by a series of uh, telephone conversations and meetings between Gareth Fitzgerald and Margaret Thatcher, where they discussed uh, a whole range of things. Uh, the relationship is interesting. Uh, the, the two of them seem to have a fair bit of a rapport. Uh, at one stage, Gareth Fitzgerald says, uh, I have a quote here, uh, and one more thing, and hear me out without exploding. Uh, and she said, you mean I have to fasten my seatbelt? Uh, so they had that kind of relationship. And actually what Gareth Fitzgerald wanted to talk about then was Sellafield, of all things. The doll had passed a motion calling for the closure of Sellafield. Uh, the two had an agreement that they wouldn't discuss with reporters what they said at the meeting so Gareth Fitzgerald said I have to mention uh, that Doris passed this motion uh, and I'm going to have to say to reporters that I've raised this issue and she says noted uh, right. This is so such a, I, I don't know, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy yeah, going yeah. on there, there between but the there two is. Of them. So, so, but, but it's actually when you read some of the, the exchanges mm. like that that you realise there's a pers- there are two human beings involved here as well and with their different temperaments. Uh, but the big issues that they were discussing was northern nationalism, the continuation of violence, uh, uh, which... They had hoped the Anglo-Irish Agreement would bring an end to. She was getting impatient with the SDLP. She was getting impatient with the fact that violence was continuing. And she mentioned to Garrett, she said, Dundalk is, uh, you know, there, there seems to be a safe haven for terrorists. So he pointed out that a lot of people from Northern Ireland had actually come south of the border. And that, in fact, there were 200 people... Uh, from the north in jails in the Republic and he just said obviously joking you're welcome to have them back and she said no thanks you're welcome to have all northern nationalists if you want them uh, so it's, it's an interesting uh, line an interesting itself, line itself. Yeah. now um, <laughs> there, there are two of them were said both were kind of facetious but it showed her I think it did show her deep-seated uh, feeling about and the institutions established by the, by the <clears throat> treaty were, were all up and running but they were up at, and at running uh, yeah. they were up and running the northern secretary Tom King was meeting Peter Barry um, the uh, the officials were working beavering away um, there's Michael Lillis or various other foreign affairs officials were up in the north uh, they, were, they were working hard with the British government they were also working hard trying to uh, get views on the ground from people in the nationalist communities in particular they were asking talk to parish priest in West Belfast talking to the Bishop Cahill Daly who had come back and there was one interesting reference one of the parish priests in West Belfast said to the foreign affairs person that uh, people were kind of um, mor- there was a mor- they were morally in- inured to the, the violence of this stage but that Bishop Cahill the Bishop was different because he'd spent 20 years in Longford and com- before coming back to Belfast and he was still morally outraged because he'd been living in a different climate mm-hmm. uh, and Cahill C- Daly's views for instance on Jerry Adams are much stronger than the local priests are saying Adams is you know, he's uh, trying to pursue a political path and maybe be for the good in the long run. Uh, Bishop Daly is saying Jerry Adams will pursue. He's a ruthless 
operator who will pursue the path by whatever means necessary to achieve his aims, be that whatever it, whatever it is. But it's an interesting, different perspectives. But all of these, they're reporting back to people in Dublin. So this notion that uh, they don't know what people on the ground are saying, they're talking to people on the ground. So you do get a, you get a picture of how things were going at that stage. Uh, and you, you, looking back at the files, there are certainly some positive developments. The, the Anglo-Irish Agreement was bedding down, but a lot of dissatisfaction in the nationalist community. Some of the people, certainly some of the priests, saying, this is not going to go anywhere, we're never going to get to peace. And yet when you know that actually there was a, a few years of violence afterwards, but ultimately when you know, it, it turned out better than I think a lot of people Well, indeed, I, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing and all that, but I mean, I think a lot of people would agree that the Anglo-Irish Agreement was was perhaps, you know, one of the key moments in a, in a long, in a, long yeah, process, yeah, yeah. which ultimately led to the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, What's yeah. happened since? I mean, I'm old enough for Lane to remember 1986 it was a pretty grim grim time in Ireland the the Fitzgerald government the Labour Fine Gael government was into its I think its third year or so mm-hmm. at that point had another year or so to go before be, before Charlie Hawhey was returned to power the economy was in rag order mm-hmm. and there were various there, we'd had the abortion referendum a couple of years earlier there was a divorce referendum that yes, year of course there was yeah. um, indeed it was an interesting year um, unemployment was very high I think it was running at somewhere around 17% or thereabouts um, but again for me going into to the files for the first time um, what I found interesting was that you do get a great overview of these incipient processes of social change um, I mean at the time uh, of the divorce referendum there's a lot of discussion in the Department of Social Welfare files for example about um, how you would deal with this so called new category of needy person that would be created if divorce became a, a reality in Ireland and there's a lot of discussion in the background to whether we should make changes to unmarried mothers allowance for example or desert, deserted wives benefit etc um, and you you know the fact that you couldn't discriminate between against men or women, um, and at the same time there was also some equality legislation was being drawn up. Um, you know there was a question of whether um, a new equality agency would be formed to kind of uh, to take control of that. And there was some suggestion that perhaps it should be um, the role of the consumer agency, in fact, to take on equality issues. So it, it's great to get a good overview of what was going on in that year in terms of equality, social change, and again the divorce referendum, which didn't actually pass ultimately in the summer of that year um, but it is fascinating to see the, the discussions that were going on at, at the time around how they should manage social welfare benefits and so on if it did actually happen Yes and there, there are some things maybe withheld does that yeah. happen on a regular basis that you find that you go looking for something and, and there isn't documentation there and, and if so why would it not be there? Well that's the thing I suppose uh, journalists every year have three days um, in December where the reading room is closed to the general public to go through these files and we will all have kind of teed up the kind of things that we will be looking for politically etc um, you can't really be sure what's going to be in the files that's the thing because um, the departments for various reasons may certify um, that they're not going to release the files um, On what basis? Typi- well typically um, in general all departmental records which are more than 30 years old must be transferred to the National Archives and made available for inspection by, to the public um, or by the public um, unless they are for example in regular use in a department or they're requ- required in connection with its administration still now, Which seems unlikely. It seems unlikely 30 years on that, mm. that most files would be still in use or any files really would still be in use by a department. Um, they may also be certified as exempt from release if for example uh, making them available to the public would be contrary to the public interest or would constitute a breach of somebody's statutory duty or it might cause distress or danger to a living person or be likely to lead to an action for damages for, or for defamation 
transformation, uh, which is interesting because if you actually look at the people who were in government at the time, there were ministers in government at the time who were actually still in government today. So mm. there could very well be reasons Michael why. Michael Noonan was a minister then. Exactly, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. He oh. was a minister throughout 1986. I think a minister for industry and commerce in that year. Um, not that I'm suggesting there was anything, there might be necessarily anything relating to a particular minister in a file, but you can see why a department might, for example, decide to certify a particular file as exempt from release if they didn't want to see something in the media that might embarrass their minister of the day. And I suppose, it's, realistically, Stephen, you are talking about 30 years is not that long a time and there certainly be talking about many people who still be alive and some of whom is, are still, yeah. still in the public eye. I think that is the case. There's security issues arise too. I noticed that some of the Northern Ireland files are just pa- pages were abstracted. The file was there, but there was a page out. Uh, I assume a reference to a living person. Um, and of course, the, li- the laws of libel don't. The National Archives are not privileged. So if uh, the newspaper uses something from the National Archives that somebody thinks is libelous, they can sue. Oh. So we, we have to be careful as well. So a lot of it is security, a lot of it is personal as well. That if people are still alive or their families, uh, for instance, there was one file that was released this year, which I looked at because I. Uh, it was fascinating. It was 1941. It's, it's a sacking of five or six chief superintendents. It was a purge at the top level of the Gardaí. One of the people who was sacked, there was Eamon Coogan, who father of Timpa Coogan, the historian and writer. Uh, and Eamon Coogan had been deputy commissioner of the Gardaí. He was a kind of... A, and he ran, went on to become a Fine Gael Tadis. So that was an interesting file. Why was it withheld? Well, both, both Eamon Coogan died in 1948. A number of other uh, chief superintendents uh, were... They were being sacked for drinking, uh, for abuse of their position... Uh, for various reasons which would were probably uh, embarrassing while they were alive because these things weren't proved and ultimately they, were, so they would have been defamatory, and, arguably, and, defamatory. Yeah. Mm. and ultimately they weren't so much sacked uh, they were forcibly retired they got their pensions so it, so it's the personal issues if there's embarrassing stuff that could be embarrassing to an individual or family or they might sue uh, that can be withheld so it's very much at the discretion of the department and What about security related <coughs> material given that we're in the, the midst of the troubles But at, security at related material is, st- is the, the security is still an issue and certainly from the Department of Justice files I remember a few years ago uh, at, looking at the files at the time of the arms crisis uh, and there, there was a big f- file for instance on Captain Kelly in the Department of Justice because somebody told me about it there that wasn't released uh, and I'm sure there were plenty of other stuff around the time of the arms crisis still is still uh, kept is not released a lot of very interesting stuff was released but it's up to the the, 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 the departments to make the judgement call and is there any process for appeal on, there on, is on a process for, for appealing but the trouble is you don't if you, if, if you know a whole file hasn't been released for instance I think we mentioned Elaine mentioned the Anne Lovett case uh, I was aware that there were two big reports done uh, including into the role of the media and into the, 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 how, how the whole issue was treated by the state services those files have, haven't been released yet. I suspect it's because many of the people mentioned are still are still around. They'd, and, be, uh, they'd be fascinating to uh, see. They would be, but they? it would be fascinating mm-hmm. to see. Uh, so, uh, but ultimately, they will ultimate they will ultimately be released. Those files are in the system, uh, as such as the 1941 Garda one. It was, it, you know, it's it, it, they're still there in the system, and over time, uh, they will all be released. Elena, there, there, I was fine to shows what a shallow person I am. That I'm always when I go into archives, I'm more interested in all the kind of the strange, quirky mm-hmm. kind of stuff that sheds an unexpected light on, on how things were at the time and there's a few there's plenty of that kind of stuff there in there There are too, a few I mean as Stephen was speaking there um, one came to mind um, that my colleague Fiona Gartland uncovered while she was going through the files and it was a case where it was a row down in Cork City District Court where a judge held a particular solicitor in contempt and it was Judge Desmond Windle and we did subsequently check and he is 
since deceased, but he held a solicitor in contempt and refused to hear any more about his case, found his client guilty and wanted to have the solicitor uh, sent to prison for seven days, uh, whereupon um, the solicitors all banded together and made a statement in court. Um, 50 of them came together in court the following day and staged a mass walkout, um, which was quite interesting. But the judge apparently had a conversation with a guard inspector in the court and ordered that the media should not report any of what happened and that none of the, the reports should appear in any newspapers. So, um, I, you know... <laughs> and did that happen? Well, they wasn't reported anywhere. Well, the I, incident I wasn't reported. I don't believe reported. it was no. reported anywhere but until now. <laughs> I, I, I did, it rang a bell with okay. me when I saw Fiona's, uh, was putting this to the okay. list that Desmond Windle rang a bell. Maybe he was involved in another controversial case. Mm. I think he was a fairly controversial district justice, but I'd certainly had heard of him. Uh, but uh, no, there are, there, are, there are all sorts of quirky cases, even on the, on the straightforward political front. One that just kind of intrigued me was there's a bit of a row over the statue of Queen Victoria. There used to be a gigantic statue of Queen Victoria on the plinth in Leinster House. It was taken down in 1948. But in 1986, the city of Sydney uh, asked, could they have it? They were looking, they, they, there's a Queen Victoria building in Sydney, uh, which, was re- which was restored, and they were looking for a statue of Queen Victoria. They, they scoured the old empire and couldn't find one, but somebody told them there's one in Dublin. The Office of Public Works and Gareth Fitzgerald teaching was very sympathetic. It said, yes, we'll ship you out, you can, have, you can have Victoria. But John Bruton, who was Minister of Finance, took grievous exception to it, and so did the director of the National Museum. Both of them argued that it was part of Ireland's cultural heritage. And OK, it mightn't be the majority of you any moment to have a quick statue of Queen Victoria on the place, but it was done by an Irish sculpture and it should remain in Ireland. Uh, There's a great, great consistency on, on John Bruton's part. He's been, exactly. he's, been, he's been even in the studio, you know, arguing arguing for, the, yeah, the, for, for that tradition for in that, Ireland to be respected. The, exactly. And he, but then he also pointed out to Garrett, had, I imagine at the Cabinet, that the Anglo-Irish agreement talks about respect for two traditions and here you are saying because of the other tradition we can boot it off to Australia. Anyway, it went to Australia. The Australians were very gratified to have it. But instead of going permanently, it's gone on loan. So whoever we want Queen Victoria back, get her back. If we want her back, we can have her back. It's a fine looking statue. I've seen, it, I've seen photographs and, of it. And yeah. there, were, there were a lot of thing, uh, things around the bay. I can't remember the technical t- name for them. Uh, statues around the around the base uh, of the Queen mm. Victoria statue. They are now on display in Leinster House. Ah, so right. a, a bit of it is, uh, is, is, is remains where it was uh, uh, formally unveiled in 1908. Yeah. There was one other one actually involving Australia, which I found uh, one of the, the funny ones I found um, was that the late uh, Cardinal Tommaso Fee managed to insinuate himself into a visit by Pope John Paul II to Australia in that year. And this emerged in a file from the Australian Embassy to um, in a letter to Sean Donnan, who was then the Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs here. And the Ambassador Joseph Small wrote to Mr Donnan that um, Cardinal Fee had managed to insinuate himself into a visit by Pope John Paul even though he hadn't actually been invited he conveniently managed to find himself there on a private visit uh, but did manage to celebrate mass in front of 250,000 people in Sydney up. he just showed up he just showed up mass for, for a quarter of a million people <laughs> fantastic finally Stephen can I just, just ask you are, are we likely to see any changes in this system over, over the next while other countries are sort of updating and modernising yeah. and in some cases shortening the window that we have to wait for these absolutely these well the window released. the British have shortened the window to 20 years rather than 30 years uh, and some people involved in the Anglo Irish end of Anglo Irish affairs uh, thought the British are getting their version of history out first before us. Uh, well, it would work that way, wouldn't it? Would because you'd get the British insight yeah, 10 years the, ahead of the Irish insight. Uh, but yeah. uh, the government took a decision about a year ago that we were going to move to a 20 year uh, rule as well. Mm. The heads of the bill were only discussed by the cabinet a couple of weeks ago, but they will come formally uh, before the government in the next while. So uh, this, and you have a question of resources and staffing at the National Archives to do this, but we are going to move to a 20-year rule. And then more interesting down the line, uh, what are we going to do about digital? 
uh, and the National Archive is trying to devise a policy on this because if they move to a 20-year rule, uh, 1996, 1997, uh, emails were certainly there. So what? So departmental emails would be covered, uh, not just documents. So they have to devise protocols and rules. Uh, the, the Data Protection Commissioner has got to be involved in this. I, ironically, the Data Protection, a lot of stuff that's protected by the Data Protector, Protection Commissioner uh, in electronic form, uh, there's no problem releasing it in pa- if it's in paper form. There's, no, so, there's no rules applying. There's no rules, rules apply. apply and, there, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and in it, so there are going to have to be discussions. But I think that, that's where it's going to go. We're going to go down to a 20-year rule. Uh, we're, we need to get stuff from other departments as well. Other departments... Uh, the National Archives doesn't have the capacity at the moment to to take them and they don't have the capacity to give the files. So they just don't have the resources well, from... No, they have a lot of them and some of them are in storage. But for instance, the Department of Finance files, uh, they should be up to date. The, 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 main, the main government departments, the main policy departments are there, but not finance, uh, for instance, health. Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of departments who are, who are behind and even when their stuff is sent over to the National Archives, it isn't uh, immediately available. So... Uh, a lot of things need to happen, so moving to it, but moving to a twenty-year rule is certainly uh, that is going to take place. Right, and I look forward to that, and I look forward also to reading more of this material, which has been put together by Stephen and by Elaine, and as you say, by Fiona Gartland, which you can read in the Irish Times over the course of the New Year's Eve and day and holidays. Thanks very much, Stephen and Elaine, for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Story. Thanks to our producer Declan Conan and engineer Rob O'Sullivan. Uh, we are really interested to know what you think of this series, so remember you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can. Find Find me on Twitter and remember also you can find all our podcasts on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And if you are a subscriber, we do always appreciate it if you take a moment to rate or to review this show as it does a lot to help us reach out to a wider audience. But now it only remains for me to wish you all a very happy new year to say we'll be back with Inside Politics on Wednesday and with more Inside Stories over the course of 2017. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.